Hello and welcome to the MIG Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop and best-selling author of Project to Product, how to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption with the Flow Framework. Joining me on today's episode, it's Emmanuel Paish, co-author of Team Topologies, organizing business and technology teams for fast flow. Recognized by Tech Beacon as a DevOps thought leader, Manuel is an independent IT organization consultant and trainer focused on team interactions, delivery practices, and accelerating flow. I've been amazed at the rapid adoption of Team Topologies. I think it's a critical book, and so I'm thrilled to have Manuel join me on the podcast again. Manuel first joined me on the podcast back in June 2020, where he delved into some insights and patterns, as well as anti-patterns of how teams are structured and evolve. There's been a ton of learning since then, and a lot has happened, so I'm thrilled that Manuel is here to join us again. So with that, let's go ahead and dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Project to Product podcast. I am just thrilled to have Manuel Paish on it. And welcome, Manuel. We we chatted, if you recall. It was, uh, I think, it was may have been the very last conference I went to. When we were in person, there was a recording. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I actually have listened back to that recording because it's 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 not a great recording in the sense that there's all this background noise, but it's so nice to hear that that clatter (laughs) of the conference behind us when you, myself and and Matthew were talking about the the recent release of Team Topologies. So I know that you have learned a ton since then. I think a lot of people are very excited that you've applied some of those learnings to to this remote team interactions workbook. We'll of course link that. That's more timely than ever. And the fact that you've created this this incredible language and an approach for actually thinking about teams and structures is is incredible. And I think it's been more more timely than Thank ever. You. So I think with that, why don't we just just get started? Why don't you just kick us off? Uh, letting the listeners know how how you got here, how you know this was this was way pre-pandemic that you realized that these team structures were so important. And if you could tell us a little bit about your your personal journey, and then of course I'm going to want to dig into a whole bunch of topics around around what you've been doing with with team topologies. Sounds good, and and thank you for the invitation, Mick. It's uh, always a, a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, so it's interesting. You mentioned that you know obviously the book came out in and late 2019, so before the, the pandemic kicked in. We did already have the understanding that it's not so much about whether teams are collocated or, or remote. It's really about how do they interact. It's true that with with a remote first approach or remote first environment, it becomes even more important. You can't go around. You can't kind of minimize the communication interaction issues because you're in the same building anymore, which is what used to happen frequently that uh, we kind of compensated for the lack of kind of more structured or more intentional ways of interacting and understanding when should we interact with other teams and, and how. And that was sort of slightly compensated for by the fact that we're in the same building. And so we can just, you know, reach out and, and talk to, to other people. And now with a remote first environment or hybrid, if you like, there is clearly a need that we need more clarity. We need to understand uh, not just from a tooling perspective. Obviously, that's also important. How do we, which kind of tooling helps us communicate? But how do we actually make use of that tooling and make the interactions more um, intentional? Right. So that we, it's very easy in in a, in a remote or hybrid approach that we focus a lot on our own team, which makes sense. But we still need to keep interactions with other teams. So we still need to understand 
which other teams are sort of around us, at least that are closely related to us. What are they doing? When is there going to be maybe a dependency from us on that team or vice versa? And, you know, trying to keep those dependencies kind of healthy so that we're not falling into frequent kind of um, challenges where we depend on other teams to do certain work. And so we can't uh, move forward. We can't respond to our customers as quickly as we should. So that's a little bit on the on the workbook, why that came about as well. The workbook is essentially taking some of the ideas of the Team Topologies book and giving more context and giving more a little bit more practical guidance and examples and then asking the reader to uh, some useful questions for them to to think about in their own organization. Yeah, that's that's excellent. And when can you actually let us know when IT Revolution is publishing this? When will it be out? Because I think it's a, it's something again that I think is is sorely needed by many. So the book will be out late January, and then later in the year, I think uh, in Q2, the actual ebook digital versions on uh, all the retailers as well as the the physical uh, version will be available in Q2. And we'll put a link to, to both the app and the workbook as well in the in the materials. So you know, even with the way that you're thinking and discussing remote work right now, I think one of the to me one of the the most important thing about Team Topologies is that it gave a lot of the people I work with, myself, my colleagues, a, a vocabulary to, to thinking about communication, collaboration, and team structures. And I think that you know, I think you and I have seen a similar thing where this is this has become such a key topic. I know certainly you, you sent me that that. Tweet by Charlie Betts recently, right? Where uh, he was mentioning that in every single client conversation, every, every weekly client conversations, it's he's seeing project, product, accelerate, and team topologies. These, these things somehow dovetail. And I think what so many people want to understand is, is how they dovetail. And to me, it's I think quite obvious because there's without having a clear understanding of team topologies, you can't shift from project to product. One of the, the main failures that we see is people is, are having their they're basically uh, renaming titles. They're doing like a not even a refactoring, just just renaming every project manager or product manager without actually thinking about the, the team structures. So I think it is, if anything, over the last several years of the Flow framework being deployed, uh, I've learned that without having an understanding of team topologies and actually making sure that organizational design is as important to the shift to from project to product as software architecture, as team structures, it it gets pretty tricky to succeed, right? And this is where we actually yeah. see things things going sideways. So I just want to start digging into this because I think again you've got the you know, the, you know both the perspective you've put the work out there, you've given us a new vocabulary which is extremely important. You've helped us formalize ways of talking about collaboration because everyone talks about collaboration, but you know, between facilitation, actual collaboration, X as a service, uh, these are actually very different patterns, right? You've, yeah. You just reminded me of one of the things that I saw personally within our teams at Talstop as a, as, a as a problem. We've always had this combination of flex and remote, our background's open source, but when teams are collaborating too much, well, maybe something else is wrong, right? Maybe they don't have clear enough boundaries, whether they're team boundaries or, or API boundaries or the like. So just tell us a little bit about, because I think, what so many people saw with that shift to remote work is Slack channels being flooded, other channels being flooded. And somehow when we were co-located, you wouldn't go and interrupt a person every two seconds who were sitting three desks away, right? So, yeah. so there's, I think, even now, even more than ever, the language that you provided us and the structure you provided us with Team Topologies has to be applied because it's, it's almost harder to detect some of, these, some of these problems and you certainly can't do it by walking around. So can you take us through that, how you think about collaboration and what you've learned in the shift to remote work in terms of things actually, you know, some things got easier, but but I've actually seen these dependencies get 
worse in many cases in a lot of organizations. And again, communication channels just get flooded. That's super interesting. And, and what you were saying before as well, between you know relationship of moving from project to product approach and, and team topology, we're definitely seeing that. In fact, it's now been two years since team topologies was published. And so we start seeing even for early adopters, how things have evolved in a way that speaks to to that that uh, relationship between the two things. Because some organizations adopted kind of the some of the core ideas of team topology in terms of the types of teams and interaction modes that really helped them bring more clarity about what are we doing, who depends on on who, and how do we make that more clear. But they didn't really think about the value streams. They didn't really think about the end-to-end flow that much. And so some of those organizations are now kind of bumping into those kind of problems. We actually didn't move away or we didn't move away enough from the project mindset that we had before. We just, maybe inside the project is more clear who is responsible for what, but we're still not looking at the value stream at the, the end customer value that we're, we're providing and how to make, you know, improve the flow inside those value streams, which is obviously um uh, core aspect of 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 your book and and the flow framework. So it's there's definitely a very strong relationship there in terms of the remote approach and and the the what what has sort of gone wrong between quotes. I totally agree with you. I I think many organizations kind of stay at the at the at the level of the you know we need some obviously some chat tools we need some video calls uh, but then they don't go much further and. In the in the remote first workbook that is coming out, what we're we're talking about is exactly what are some kind of ground, not just rules but principles to help you make sense of uh, is there too much collaboration? Is there too much noise, especially in the way that teams are interacting? Like you're saying, with you know, organizations have a single Slack or or Microsoft Teams, a single workspace, and then everyone's supposed to communicate with everyone else. And that can be quite painful, actually, because it's like uh, someone, if you were in the same office and standing up and shouting to the other side of the room, right? This would disturb a lot of people and probably it's not very efficient to get the, the thing done that you need. And so we can adopt some rather simple but useful kind of conventions and, and, and guidelines for structuring the virtual workspace. You know, having channels for specific interactions, for example, if you have two teams that are actually collaborating because, and we know in the sense of team topologies, we're collaborating because we have a specific purpose besides an expected duration of how long this collaboration will take. But we usually collaboration between two teams, often it should be to kind of clarify the boundaries between those two teams. So if we're often depending on each other, let's collaborate to figure out why that is and how can we remove this recurring dependency or at least make it not as frequent, right? Maybe one of the teams lacks some skills that are needed to do some of the work that they usually depend on another team, or maybe it's just from an architectural point of view that things are too coupled and so they, they, you need the two teams to be involved. So we might have a channel in, in a Slack workspace, for example, where this channel is temporary, is for this specific collaboration to happen, right? And so it's nothing sort of rocket science or super complicated. It's just some some ground rules and principles to make things more discoverable, reduce the noise, and think about what actually, what kind of 
communication interactions need to happen and how do we make those easier by having the right virtual spaces to do that, as well as thinking about things like trust boundaries, right? Which is something we man- we talk about in, in team topologies that also many organizations don't focus as much, but it's super important, right? You can't have 500 people in a single workspace, in a digital workspace, in a chat tool, and expect that they all talk to each other whenever it's needed. That's not, people have different degrees of trust based on the size of the group they're part of. So we should be thinking about that when we're organizing for digital interactions. Yeah, and it's it's just so interesting what you say about about this noise, right? Because I think, and this is, let me know if your perceptions are different, but what I've noticed is, and I'm, it's been amazing and I think extremely positive for the whole industry, how quickly and broadly the concepts of team topologies have been adopted. So for those who haven't dug into it, it's the, the book I think is, is, is just an absolute must read. I, I was when I, when I first read it, it was just amazing to me, of course, that because it, it came out a year after Project to Product. I was like, wow, this is exactly it. This, <laughs> this, this is that this is that organizational piece that's needed to implement the shift from project to product and flow. It's a, it's, it's a core, it's a key component. Yeah. Just like you know, one of your key components is, is removing impediments through through DevOps practices in cloud. Right, those were things I I expected to be in place, but it's interesting I, because yeah. just a, a quick note. Actually, the, the Puppet State of DevOps report that came out in 2021, so in, in the summer, actually, basically, one of the findings was that that now the DevOps practices and cloud, public cloud adoption, etc., are kind of almost baseline to be able to be competitive. And then all the organizational aspects is what, at least for the time being, the things that are differentiating those forward-thinking organizations that are able to move faster and adapt their their structures to to match the things that they're trying to do and the value they're trying to provide so actually the report kind of gives evidence to to this yeah yeah and anecdotally i just i the evidence that i see from my conversations is is completely aligned with that where the organizations you know the devops practices are well understood agile practices are well understood yeah. And in so many of these organizations, the team and leadership structures, the communication structures, the collaboration architectures, are actually fighting against the the principles of those niches of you know about flow feedback and, and and learning. So if you don't have streamlined teams, well, how what how are you learning? How are you evolving? And so on. So the next several guests actually, Manuel, you'll be the you're the first because I think you've laid some of the foundations. Will actually be people who have created these effective structures that you talk about in both enterprise and, and organizations and, and tech giants. Because I think it's it's like you say, this is you get this right and you're moving ahead much faster. If all you've done is implemented continuous delivery, it's not it's insufficient. It's necessary but not sufficient. Right? The same way that we know that those, let's say those, you know, the accelerate metrics, the Dora metrics, those those are critical. You have to have them. But if you're not measuring end-to-end flow, how do you know if you're actually removing enough burden from your team? You've removed a portion of the burden, but but if they had all these upstream dependencies on sort of dysfunctional handoffs from old school ways of managing projects and dumping work to to technology teams, well, you, you don't have flow. So project to product and flow framework wise, you're not improving. But the reason you're not improving is because you, you don't have what you've outlined as these effective effective structures. And I do, just reflecting quickly on what you said, I think the, the fascinating thing to me is that there's almost been this assumption that we've, you know, we'll get modern tools, we'll get the agile tools in place and so on. But again, I think you and I are seeing a similar thing, which is that unless you actually apply these communication architecture principles to those tools, 
and this is one of the things that I think early in the early days inspired me for that Ben Horowitz said, that communication architecture is one of the most important things in the organization. And of course, in the software organization, it's, it needs to actually be aligned to the software architecture and the team structure. But finally, that it's now more important than ever, I think, to have a well-defined and effective team structure and organizational design that's going to take your, your organization and your software and your portfolio where you want to go rather than, than vice versa, right? Yeah. Then you, you basically being put of the silos. Yeah, and it's, I would say, even beyond the having the right uh, kind of design is actually what you really need is having in place the structures, if you like, the, the, the enabling, the enablement structures to help you evolve the organization, right? So we still see, and, and maybe in the book, in Team Topology, is something we should have highlighted uh, more or earlier that it's really about the evolution of the organization. It's, it's, you won't be able to stop and say, let's reorganize and find the right structures and then we can move forward. What you need is to start having the, the regular thinking about, you know, what are the challenges we have? What are the dependencies? What are the, the boundaries that are unclear? Also, sometimes, you know, we might need some, some better tooling. Obviously, that also happens, but, it's really about the, the how do we enable flow? How do we, you know, obviously we can we can look at the the metrics from from flow framework, for example, and that helps us kind of frame, um, and then look at kind of what are the challenges to improve flow. And there's a strong organizational part to that, which then ties into other things like funding. Right? If you're if you're not funding teams, you're funding projects, and it becomes yeah. difficult to kind of evolve the teams and to to get the teams to have more, you know, be, to be long lived and to have the stability to to get better, I would say it's it's uh, organization design plus organization dynamics, right? Yeah. Dynamically changing the organization design on a regular basis, if you need to change it, or at least looking at the, the challenges, is what really makes the the biggest difference. Yeah, and then I mean, I think you put this so well in the book, but people in terms of how to approach this because of course everyone's got fatigue from the last reorg from the last switch to matrix or the last yeah. switch more hierarchical from silos and the rest and your position on this is that it's not about one the next reorg it's not about having one static design that's consistent for the in- entire organization it's actually about understanding these topologies and implementing and evolving them so so can you i think that that is a, again for all the people who i'm sure are, are and, are listening and saying, okay, well, you know, we've gone to from a two in the box, so a three in the box, to a matrix structure, and so on. Just conceptually frame for us, given that the organizational design is complex. You know, to start today for for leaders listening, how do you approach it? And and I think this really is a different point of view than a typical view of let's let's do the next reorg. So take us through it, please. Like we said in the book, these large reorgs, they provide. I'm not saying they don't provide. Value they provide some value. We're trying to do things in, in a better way, but there's a lot of kind of negative side effects as well. People get tired, they get demotivated when they don't see the 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 the, the benefits that they were expecting, right? And then the second reorg, the third, kind of just becomes something they are almost numb to. They're not not really engaged, and so team topologies helps. First of all, we, like you're saying earlier, it's a shared language. And so through the book, and also we have an online academy, which is meant exactly for that, for people to be able to quickly have shared vocabulary, at least to discuss the problems. And even if you haven't adopted any of the Team Topology's ideas, you can start 
even inside a single team, you can start talking, are we a sort of streamlined team or do we think we're more of a platform team? What is the gap between becoming a, a really or, or, or significantly streamlined to where we are today? So even inside a single team, you can start making that progress. Obviously, at, there will be some organizational aspects that you can control, but you can start that thinking inside each team even. And so if I'm talking to, to leadership, what I would say is avoid the big reorg where you stop the work even to you know do all these changes because you might get to a slightly better state, but it's not the end of the story. There's no end state to organization design. And so you, you shouldn't make that assumption that we can in, in three months go from the current situation to uh, an ideal situation. That's just not going to work, right? So it's great to have the, the investment and you need the, the engagement from leadership that we want to get to a better place, but it's going to be a journey. And so start with if one value stream, for example, start, uh, if, if even if you're not kind of aligned to value streams, start thinking about what could be one value stream. And then within that, we also think about, you know, what makes sense in terms of how many teams should be in this value stream, what are the, the products. And so, and then we think about, okay, what does this team, what do these teams need in terms of help from uh, maybe a platform team, right? And so it's sort of, if you like, a sort of pilot approach where we say, let's take a small part and see how these things play out. It also takes time for teams to interact in these more well-defined ways, right? In my experience, I never had any work in an organization where I had this kind of clarity on, is do I need to collaborate or not? Do I need to facilitate or provide something in, in, as a service? And so these things also take time at the team level to adopt these interaction modes and then see where where there are challenges, where there are difficulties so that we can improve. So that's what I would I would recommend. But in some cases, some organizations want to do a much uh, faster and, and larger scale transformation, which is not a, <laughs> how do I say it? It's, you can try to do that, but you'll probably come into a lot of problems that you're not expecting because you haven't given enough time to to figure out what are the new challenges as we move towards uh, a better way of working, but it's not it's not an ideal state, right? It's something where we'll find other challenges, but we know we're going in the right direction. Okay, yeah, exactly. And I think you know, I know we've taken a, my company this approach of of you know making it incremental and evolving it over time. And again, I think to your point, it's it's impossible to do without a vocabulary, without a model, right? Team Topologies provides that model. So let's play this out though. So now I'm doing what you're doing. Let's say I've got a staff of you know, a thousand in technology. I've got too much separation with sort of the business owners, product owners, and the, the, the business stakeholders not in my organization. And and now I want to take the first steps. So what what do you think I should do? So do you think I should, so again, and, and I've actually, uh, I've read the vocabulary, and I think more importantly, by the way, I do want to make this point because I know in the people, the leaders I've been speaking to, a lot of them, and this is this is a, a, I think a, a really again significant impact on Win Manuel is they they get the team types, right? They get the yeah. four team types, and I just wish they would actually get deeper. I don't know, maybe because you put it later in the book. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know how it is with books; people don't always read them to the end. But but these collaboration types, are people have not necessarily appreciated that how teams will work together. Yet yet they feel the pain when teams are too tightly coupled, or or there's again throw things being thrown over the fence. But but the collaboration facilitation next as a service, I do again encourage everyone dig into that because I think it's 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 so core to the first principles of team topologies and and of creating. Organizational dynamics, but okay. So I've got I've got my teams. I've tried to apply some of the some of the Spotify model here and and so on. And now, wh- what do I do? Should I basically for my for my streamlined teams? How and this Manuel, this question comes up all the time for me. And I, so this is why I point them to your and Matthew's work, of course. But how do I think about what my value streams are? Because I think the you've provided this amazing tool. This is why I had. Uh, Dave Snowden on the podcast about thinking about these domains and complexity and so on. So just, just tell us how you think about what the you know how to think about value streams, how to actually at a, at a high level start partitioning what a team can handle. Because I know when our staff read Team Topologies, one of the most important tools that came out of it that's that's just a key part of the language at TaskUp now is the concept in terms of, of the cognitive load of the teams. And it's ignored, right? Just the same way with the, what the flow metrics tell us is ignored is it, when planning is done in a project-oriented way, there's no notion of a team's capacity. So you make these amazing plans for amazing digital experiences, and you actually have no idea what can be delivered when the teams get completely overloaded, flow load gets too high, and so on. I think that the piece of the puzzle that your work and Matthew's work unlocked for me is, is actually understanding why. And this has to do with how you think about basically these domains and boundaries of what teams can handle. So help me understand that so I can, help, I can think about how to best structure my value streams. Well, first of all, I think it's important to understand that both me and Matthew have a um, background in, in software engineering. And effectively, part of what we've done is apply some good software principles to organization design. So the idea of the loose coupling, you know, internal cohesion, where, which we talk about for software, we're talking about that for, for teams, right? So, and because of Conway's law, that makes a lot of sense as well. And so those are some of the, the principles we're trying to get at because also not just from, well, for two main reasons, at least. One is from a business perspective. If we have the streamlined teams that understand what is the value stream, understand who are their customers, then we'll be able, they'll be able to respond faster to that if they have enough kind of uh, independence and end-to-end ownership. But at the same time, they'll be able also to control better control their cognitive load, ideally. They'll be able to understand, you know, we have maybe too much on our plate. There are some things that we we need to have more help from a platform, or there are some things that we need to improve our our skills. Whatever might be causing that overload in their cognitive capacity, ideally they will they'll be able to to take action upon that. But it starts from having those principles of of loose coupling between teams in place, and when you go to to the value stream level obviously it's is starting with it depends on the on the business of the organization and how you know who are the customers so often a good place to start is understanding do we have different types of customers do we have kind of different user personas that it makes sense to align our value streams to those because we know those types of customers want certain things and they provide obviously value to our company because they're either buying the services or in, in, in some other way. And so that becomes very clear. I uh, Just this week, I had a conversation with, with one, one client where that's effectively what they're realizing. They've been organized by, by functional areas all this time, and now they realize 
all this time, they had very different types of customers. And in some cases, it's quite clear that there are different different customers that we can align different value streams to, even if that means we might be duplicating or, or um, having some similar products or functionality across different value streams. But we do that intentionally because we know that's going to allow us to change those faster and more independently. It's so key. Um, I think people, yeah. yeah, just speak about this a bit more because I think it's this is this is so poorly understood in my experience. My opinion is that we've taken the ideas of, of, of dry, don't repeat yourself, which makes sense at the software level within a team or within a set of closely related teams. Obviously, in, in within the software that one team owns, you don't want to have code that's repeated and slightly changed in multiple parts and you want to do refactoring and all this good software engineering practices, um, obviously. But when we look at the organization level, we shouldn't necessarily, or we need to make a good trade-off understanding of dry with speed, right? So if we're trying not to repeat anything and have, you tend to get into sort of traditional component teams, right? You own this component, which is used across many products or across many value streams. And that's where we get okay, we're not duplicating the component, but we're losing capacity to to respond faster because we now have this team becoming a bottleneck, possibly, if many value streams, many products depend on on that component. And so that's where I think many decisions have been made sort of in a a blind way that we can't repeat this. We we can't possibly have uh, duplicated functionality without considering the cost in terms of speed, in terms of flow, right? So it, it should be okay to say, well, let's imagine, try to give a, a more concrete example. Let's say we're in, in the um, hospitality business and you know we, we, people can book uh, travels and, and accommodation through our services. And so let's say we have, we identify different customer segments. We have luxury customers that want, you know, top range hotels and first class flights. And we have kind of budget travelers that want kind of the the best um, value for money approach. It might make sense that we, we align that those are two different value streams with different needs, with different approach. And it should be okay that we have different teams working on those value streams. And they, to some extent, they will repeat some functionality. Yeah. But then you're able to change that functionality much faster when, I don't know, some some new insight you get from one of the value streams that actually, I don't know, luxury customers are willing to to pay more for, I don't know, having dedicated service. And so that's something we can change quickly for those customers and we don't depend on another value stream or or on a component team. This kind of flies in the face of enterprise architecture, right? Or or how people think about about software architecture. But I think again, if yeah. you're actually applying as you are that these these principles of software engineering, this is where you end up, right? We want to optimize our structure for flow, and the only way to do that is to drive, a, you know, just have the teams minimize dependencies and drive autonomy, right? And then worry yeah. later, okay, maybe these two customer segments they need the same promotions experience, yeah. and then and then you make that, uh, you know, a, a, a core service that's part of a, a platform team provides, right? Is is some way yeah. of doing promotions. But I think this is so often organizations are, are rather than focusing on the products, the customers experience, those value streams, and being okay with duplication, 
they're they're trying to create these perfect structures and ending up with with these dependencies. And again, you're giving them the language to identify when that's happened. When you've got too much of this crosstalk, that you know, too much collaboration to get the simplest thing done. The square problem that we hear Gene ta- and others talk about, yeah. right? It's this and is this this is exactly how you know you've you've done something wrong, rather than again optimizing for flow and speed. And and you mentioned the platforms, and that's part of the the the, the, the importance. And I th- I think that's why we see some organizations like uh, Adidas, for example, that made a very strong investment in internal platforms, be very successful at digital transformation or digital services, because those things can really accelerate the other teams. But you have to have the right mindset on how, what, what is the platform for, is to improve the experience of the streamlined teams. It's not to just centralize all sorts of, of shared components. And again, like I was saying before, the, the platforms themselves also evolve, need to evolve on this regular basis. It's not a static thing that we say all these services are part of the platform because then you get again into problems of speed. I had actually this example with not a customer, but a, a company I talked to where we need to, to allow also streamlined teams to have more autonomy to decide when to build things that... At first sight, we might say this is outside your scope, but actually it makes sense because we don't know yet enough about this new component or new functionality to say it should be done by another team because then you're already introducing the dependency, right? So we shouldn't introduce those dependencies on the platform too early. Yeah. And so the example I had was this company, they, they sell, they, they do a secondhand market online to sell all, all kinds of things. And... They actually had one team that wanted to introduce video uh, support in the ads, right? Online ads. And so if they wait, you could say, well, video support, that should be a platform thing, right? So we're just going to wait for the platform team to provide video support. And the platform teams are usually already overloaded with work. It's it's not an uh, easy because they, they have to think about a lot of different things. And so it, that might mean instead of actually start working on it and, and create an MVP for the video support and see if it's really valuable, this team is going to wait six months, maybe longer, maybe a year for another team to build something for them, which it's a very long time to market. And maybe you're already behind with a competition that already provides video yeah. support. Yeah, exactly. So all these decisions that, you know, in my software engineering education, I was always told it's about trade-offs, and we don't often think enough. We don't always think enough about the trade-offs. If if we do this allocation of responsibilities based on what, in theory, should be responsibility of different teams, how does that affect our capacity to to respond and get to market? I think there's more awareness today, definitely, but it's still often decisions are made without enough trade-off thinking. Yep, and I think to get that right trade-off thinking, we need to have a clear sense of the fitness function, right? And if we're optimizing for flow and and making flow easier for teams, you get to see where it's working, where it's not. So I'll give you an example that I now often see because we we get the sort of the, the privilege and responsibility of seeing organizations flow across their teams and seeing where the bottlenecks are, right? By when seeing how team topologies is being applied and where you're getting these dysfun- where you're seeing these dysfunctions. So a common one, by the way, and you just by the way gave gave our listeners a sense of how to actually set up your value streams, especially your stream-aligned value streams, like the product, the feature teams, the services that you're providing. So a common one that we see now, by the way, is that the platform teams, because there is, I think, the good thing is, again, 
is that there is now a better sense for the importance and the need for these teams. And they're completely overloaded. And so they become, so much has been being dumped on them, uh, partly because I think there's still a lot of misapplication of, of as, as you mentioned, a dry principle. But partly, being, so everyone's waiting for them rather than implementing their own promotion system or whatever and then looking at whether that should actually be a common service provided by a platform team. But we're seeing all these platform teams completely overloaded. And I know some of my colleagues who've actually, within tech companies, again, we'll have some of these as, as guests on the podcast uh, throughout this year, what they've seen is that over 50% of their R&D spend is actually on those platform teams. And then you get a lot of these enterprises where you look at it, it's, I don't know, 10%, 15% or, or something of that sort. So how do you see that? Because I think, one, as, again, I think this is what's so important about the way you think about it. This is, this is dynamic, it's evolving. If you're seeing a platform team, and again, one of the best tools you've given us is to think about the cognitive load of those platform teams. And I have personally been responsible for <laughs> overloading platform teams myself. So it's a, it's a particularly poignant exam, uh, concept. Are you seeing that? Is that as people are applying team technologies, they're seeing they need to invest further in platform teams the way tech giants do? So the question is, have they interpreted or, or yeah, have the right platform mindset? Right, because it's very easy to overload teams because of what we were saying before. We're just setting expectations that well, all this stuff should be built by you, the yeah. platform team or the platform group, and that's not what we're talking about in team topology. In fact, we talk about the idea of a, a thinnest viable platform, yeah. which means obviously you try to use as much third parties and, and services as, as you can, not don't reinvent the wheel. But besides that, is also we start with the things that actually are valuable for our internal teams, for streamlined teams, and are valuable because the experience, not just functionality, the experience of using the, those platform services is really good and helps accelerate those streamlined teams. It is, of course, a delicate balance between what the platform team should be doing, what they want to be doing, and what the customers ask for them. Because you also have then, in some organizations, many streamlined teams asking all sorts of things from the platform. And so the platform teams need to have also their own autonomy to decide, well, and thinking in a product way and think, well, we, we need to focus on this first because we understand this provides more benefit and this is uh, something that that is really going to be helpful for, for multiple teams because you, otherwise you, you run the risk of either building a bloated platform that has all sorts of functionality, but then they many perform poorly and so the experience is bad. Or you can also run the risk of, we're listening only to a small set of teams and we're building a great platform just for those teams, right? The, the key thing is to, to look at the platform as a product. So product has prioritization, the product has understanding of user personas, understanding of uh, what is the value that we're bringing to, to different user personas, has understanding of the, the life cycle of also a, a service in this case in the platform, right? Especially for large organizations, not all of your teams have the same appetite for new services and functionalities. You, you're going to have the, the usual product lifecycle where you have er, innovators, early adopters, early majority, etc. So the platform team needs to have that thinking so they can see where a certain service is. Is this early innovators? You know, probably they are very okay with a lot of issues in the service, whereas if we're going to early majority and late majority, we need to really invest more on stabilization and performance, etc. The key is, is to think about the platform as a product because that brings in a lot of the, the, the thinking that is needed so that we also don't overload the platform team, that we allow platform teams to make the 
the right choices in terms of what they, they need to work on. But that goes together with what we were saying before, that streamlined teams should also have the autonomy to build things that in theory would say this is platform. But actually, if you're sort of a pioneer, you're, you're sort of the first that have this need, you can decide to invest to build it yourself and not wait for, for a platform. And then at some point, when the value of this new thing is has been proven from a business perspective, ideally, we can say, well, now it's time to make it available for other teams and to sort of platformize it. And now we, we, we collaborate with the platform team to help them bring this into the platform yeah. and, and general, make it a bit more generic, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's amazing to see it work, right? When you actually treat platforms as products, they have their roadmaps, their, their customers are clear uh, who's building on them. They care about the experience of those customers uh, and they're prioritizing if, if, if you didn't make it onto their onto the roadmap and the time frame that you need, you're going to have to build that service yourself. And then look at and of course then we can get more sophisticated and make sure that we can contribute those services to a common code base and so on and intersource that way. But yeah, exactly. It's it is it is just amazing to see this working. There's an interesting story I had with with one client which was sort of a scale up, right? They were a startup and they, they were successful. So they were they were rather they weren't very big and they were worried because they were having many. They were having more platform teams than streamlined teams, hmm. which was interesting. And they were worried because the, the kind of the, the the common understanding is that that's a bad thing. But actually, in their case, this made the life of streamlined teams very easy because yeah. it was a, a small set of, of services that they offered to yeah. end customers. This this is in the health industry, but kind of digital services area. And so the streamlined team's job was was pretty, I wouldn't say easy, but was the, the cognitive load was reduced because they could use a lot of the platform stuff that had been built together with with uh, in the past with the streamlined team. So they had a good dynamic of interact of collaboration between platform and streamlined teams and they had built the right things in the platform. And so it actually made sense for them to have more platform teams than streamlined teams, but the streamlined teams were very focused on the customers. They were not focused on building technology uh, for the sake of technology. They were really able to reduce cognitive load on the extraneous level, the things that were in the platform that they didn't need to know the details, and they could just use it to quickly provide the value to the customers. But that w- that's a sort of, I would say, particular example, but I didn't find anything really wrong with that approach. It just means they, they did a, a good approach to, to, to internal platforms. Yeah, exactly. And it depends on, on your domain and place in the market, right? You, I, I know we've got colleagues who are running very successful scale-ups who are providing a lot of APIs. Well, if your portfolio is more developer-type products, you'll end up with, with more platform-type teams that are actually offering things directly to the market and so on. So, Okay, Manuel, so now... I'm doing this. I'm implementing the the team topologies approach. I think a lot of organizations out there are relooking at their ways of working, their organizational structures. So, in terms of your, and if this is going to be misspoken, but your ideal organizational design. So already, <laughs> already a questionable. I'm sure you get these questions. Though. Do I go in and reorg and basically bring create stream leaders and every engineer and every every SRE, well, as needed, every support person now reports up to that person. Do I manage a matrix? What do I do? Because I think we've seen this interesting evolution, right? When when two pizza teams first came out of Amazon, uh, it really was this notion that they, let's let's bake this onto the org chart, 
And I know I've certainly, we've experienced with different org chart models of more reporting, more matrix, and so on. Now, it's finally documented, thankfully, in Working Backwards by, you know, by Bill Carter and Colin Breyer on how Amazon's evolved that into actually using more matrix structures in their single-threaded ownership, which are the structures that you, you talk about a lot in the, in the streamline teams and the platform teams. So what do I do? Do I reorg? Do I, well, uh, and bring people into more of the, or, do I capture more of the team topology in the org chart or the matrix? And if so, how do you help me manage this increasingly sophisticated matrix? Easy question. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Easy question. Uh, we just need another 50 yeah. minutes. <laughs> and so so can, you go, can you go a few minutes long? Because I'd love to hear anything that you can say and we can schedule a separate podcast for just that question. But <laughs> Sure. So like we said earlier, I would avoid the large reorg. I would start with, you know, think about one value stream. I would definitely have the value streams as clearly identified in your work chart. Because that, you know, you're going to need to think about funding the value stream and funding the teams. You're going to need to think about the reporting as well. And how does kind of the high level, C level organization strategy map to, to the value streams? One thing I'd say to customers that are still struggling with introducing value streams is if you need to sort of sell this to your C level, it's going, it should make their life easier because they won't have to be thinking at level, it's actually, now I think about it, reducing cognitive load on your execs because they won't be having to think about which products do we have, which yeah. technology do we have, not as much, obviously, and thinking more, what are the goals? What are what do we want to achieve? And then if you have the value streams well-defined and evolving as well, it should be much clearer that, well, if we want to achieve this goal, which you know maybe we want to increase customer retention by 5% or we want to increase sales by 10%, whatever it might be, then the value streams can then take that objective and, and think about what do we need to do and actually start looking at services and products and who are the customers that we want to, that we need to sort of target, that we want to change their behavior or, you know, get get to the to to meet the objectives of, of the, the the C level. And so it should make life easier by having the, the value streams in place. So in terms of the roles you were talking about, something I, f- I find quite interesting because you and people from Tustop have, have talked about, you know, maybe we need the value stream architect. We need uh, different kinds of roles that traditionally have not existed. So I think that makes sense. And I, I don't have an exact answer. What do you need to have in place? But the value streams and who is looking after the value streams, who is looking at the flow within a value stream, I think are some of the types of roles that we should be having, sort of flow enablers, if you like, within the value streams. And then obviously, which which teams do we need? We probably should have several streamlined teams. We'll likely will have a few or several streamlined teams for each value stream. Yeah, I think one of the main things we've learned, by the way, is, is not just you can't just have one value stream architect. You actually need these flow enablers within the teams, as you said, within within the streamlined teams. Otherwise, you get into this back to this enterprise architecture problem rather than this autonomy and ownership of flow, identifying your own bottlenecks, working around some infrastructure or service that you're missing. So yeah, no, I think that's 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 absolutely consistent with what we've seen. And Manuel, the, I think the other thing we've seen is you're right. I think the reason this actually reduces cognitive load on executives, on leadership teams, is because it's a simpler structure. 
as you just said, yep. if you can, if you're actually now connecting business outcomes and reporting for what the value streams are are providing, looking for bottlenecks between them, looking at these three have the same bottleneck, let's make that a new platform team that we should have had all along for this new set of services. It actually becomes much easier to manage, which is, I think, a lot of the success patterns we've seen in these fast-moving tech companies. So That's, I would love to dig further into this topic. Sorry, go ahead. Just, just one, one example. You're obviously uh, familiar with work of John Smart, who also yeah. has a, a book. I always get the... the I have it here. Sooner safe than happier. Yeah. I always get the, the, the order wrong. And he, before uh, he, he, when he was working at Barclays in the UK, he had some amazing presentations at the DevOps Enterprise Summit. Yes. And how they were basically trying to do this of this alignment with the value streams and the products inside the value streams and how they had the C level objectives kind of mapped to yep. quarterly outcomes that they were trying to achieve. But the outcomes were purely. Uh, mostly uh, business focus, right? And that, like you said, like you just said, is a much simpler way because we have executives focused on strategy as as they should be, and we have value streams and and the teams inside value streams focused on on products and customers and aligned to those outcomes for the business. Yeah, I think it's that simple, right? Is that you've got the the thing you need in place is is effective team structure through team topologies that drives faster flow, and as you refine it and improve it and evolve it, you see the flow improve or you find your bottlenecks, and that that drives those business outcomes that we're all after. Yeah. But, but as you said at the start of the podcast, if you don't have a sense for what those business outcomes are, what the value is, you won't even set up your value streams and your teams teams effectively. So. Yeah. Manuel, thank you so much. This is this is so awesome. Any closing thoughts? No, I think we've over over the the decades we've maybe complicated things too much where it's actually kind of simple if you think about it and why value streams are 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 so important and then understanding the the importance of applying some of those principles to the teams of, you know, autonomy but also loose coupling and internal cohesion as well that teams understand what is their mission, who are their customers, etc. So hopefully we're moving towards that kind of simpler, more effective way of thinking about organizations and, and what we do and, and why we do it. Excellent. Thank you. And and I'm I am sorry to say I only got about through about four of my twenty questions I had for you. <laughs> So we so may need to do this again in, sometime. Uh, three more podcasts. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. No, it'd be great to have you back because again, I think I think that what you've been learning and communicating is is could not be more timely and significant. So, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you to Manuel for taking the time to join us today. For more, follow me on my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags Mip Plus One or Project the Product. Manuel's Twitter is at Manuel Paysible, and you can reach out to him on LinkedIn as well. I have a new episode every few weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project the Product to get the book. And remember that all offer proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.